refugees are dehumanized in similar ways across the world, but through the art of storytelling, we can see the person behind the label and behind the statistics. In this episode, I'm joined by writer Emmeline Pierce, an architect and founder of the Bosnian Genocide Educational Trust, Samayo Besho, to talk about the dehumanizing language used to describe refugees, Samayo's personal journey of being displaced because of the Bosnian Genocide, how our work aims to create awareness about the Bosnian Genocide, and insights into Emmeline Samayo's upcoming book. Welcome to episode four of More Than a Statistic, a podcast for our world too. everyone and welcome to our fourth episode in our podcast more than a statistic and today we're joined by Emmeline Pierce and Samayo Besho and I'm gonna hand over to them to explain a little bit more about themselves and the work they do. You go first Emmeline. Well I think well so Samayo and I worked together since uh, 2019 and we met through a blog that I've got on Facebook Um, and I'm originally from South Africa, Samayo's originally from Bosnia and we arrived in this country one day apart in 1994, July 1994, which I think is really interesting. It gives a really interesting contrast to our stories because I came to this country with every imaginable advantage. You know, my parents had British passports. We were white. We spoke English. My parents were educated. My dad had a job lined up. And Smyo came the very next day in very different circumstances from Bosnia. So Smyo, maybe you want to explain your your circumstances when you arrived here. Yeah, so I'm sure we'll go into the story of what happened in Bosnia and my experience there as well. But yeah, we arrived in um, the UK on the 19th of July, 1994. Um, We left Bosnia on the 19th of June um, that year and we came as part of this British government program that was set up as part of um, with, with uh, in partnership with various humanitarian agencies um, and initially my dad was brought to the UK in January of 1994 and then as part of that agreement we were yeah, reunited with him um, for about eight years now maybe slightly longer I've been um, educating about what happened in Bosnia raising awareness of the Bosnian genocide, um, sharing my experience from Bosnia, speaking about refugees. Um, And I primarily work at Newcastle University where I teach architecture and I research genocide and violence through the built environment. Alongside that, I I am the chair of a small charity called the Bosnian Genocide Educational Trust, uh, where we focus on storytelling um, and we develop uh, materials based on survivor stories or so educational material and we do work in schools and colleges universities and then as Emmeline has said since 2019 um, Emmeline and I have been working together um, writing a book about my experience in Bosnia and then doing a lot more than that which I'm sure again we'll get into in this podcast. Thank you so much. Um, so my next question will be what led you to get involved in the work you're currently doing? And Emmeline, part two, for maybe more specifically for you, is how did you start working with Smile and why did you decide to start spreading awareness about the Bosnian genocide and refugees in general? Well, I've always been interested. So coming from South Africa, I've always been interested in the anti-apartheid movement. My my grandmother in particular was very involved in the anti-apartheid movement. She was a member of the Black Sash and, and was actually the first 
white South African to testify against the apartheid government in court, which he testified into at the inquiry into the Powell riots in 1962. So I've always had um, an interest in, in social justice and oppression and, and all those kinds of issues. And I'd always had, I'd always, I always felt, it was, it's weird to think about now, but I always wanted to know more about Bosnia. I always thought Bosnia was such a huge thing when I was a, a teenager. It was on the news every single day, and I felt like I never properly understood it. And then in uh, 2017, just after the Manchester Arena bombing, I went into Manchester the day after the bombing and made a video about um, a Muslim woman I made eye contact with. It was... Uh, uh, just outside the Arndale Centre, there was another bomb scare. People were running and panicking. And as things died down, I just saw this Muslim lady walking with her husband and her child. And she looked at me and she smiled at me and I smiled back at her. And it was a really powerful moment because I realised in that moment, we, without even saying anything to each other, we were on the same side. We wanted peace. We wanted people to come together. I, I could just tell that from that one smile. And I went home and I made a video about it and talking about how that woman and I come from the same place. That w And almost whatever your beliefs are, we come from the same place. Either we were made by the same God or we, as I believe, we evolved in the same place in Africa hundreds of thousands of years ago. And even though we'd never met each other before, we recognized each other when, when we made eye contact. So I, I made that video and... Smyo came home and, and saw his mum watching it. And that's that's how we met each other. And then he, he reached out. So I don't know, maybe Smyo, you could tell the, the other side of that story and, and, and you know, what, what effect that, that video had. Um, yeah, so I think I was either at work or I was out somewhere. I, I remember I wasn't at home when, um, when Emelyn posted that video. But I remember walking back into my house and I remember my mum was watching... And she was watching news and she was watching TV and it was the kind of aftermath of the bombing. And um, and I think because of the things that we've experienced in Bosnia, we react to these things completely differently, I think, um, in comparison to, to a lot of other people. And straight away, my mom was thinking about all the lives lost. And um, my mom's an emotional, incredibly emotional and pathetic person as well. And you know, she was thinking about all the lives ruined and, and the families and what they're, you know, what they'll be going through. And then another dimension to that is like the fear as well, because she's thinking actually, you know, that there's more and more terrorist attacks happening. There's a lot more um, uh, kind of racism and prejudice and things are changing in Europe. So there's always these mixed emotions in moments like that. And I remember my mom was watching this video and she was like, you know, have you seen this? What is, what is this? And it was actually the video of Emily describing that moment that he was just speaking about there. And she was like, you know, is this real? You know, look at look at what this um, what this person is saying. And I remember we watched it together. And for my mom, it was incredibly moving to, um, to see someone reacting to such an awful situation in that way, um, you know, when... At that point, there was a lot of awful things being shared and, and a lot of generalisation and a lot of hate towards Muslims as well. So for my mom, it was incredibly, um, incredibly important to see something like that. And I think it also, for me personally, reminded me of how my mom and my family reacted to the trauma that we experienced in Bosnia when it could have been easier to turn to hate, when it could have been easier to turn to extreme, extremism you know, that they, they dealt with that past in a, in, in a really meaningful 
away. So I looked up who this guy was and I saw it was like Emlyn Pierce. I was like, who is this guy? I thought it was actually Welsh or something. Um, and I saw he had a huge social media following, I think 50,000 people on Facebook. And I was like, I need to get in touch with this guy. I need to make contact. Um, and, I, and I want to speak to him. Firstly, I want to thank him, you know, that he's doing something courageous. Again, it, this reminded me of how my family reacted to what was happening in Bosnia. Um, and yes, yeah, so I sent Hamlin an email and I invited him to Newcastle. This was in 2017 to one of the first events that we organized up here uh, to commemorate the genocide in Bosnia. And uh, I think Hamlin took about a month to respond. Um, and yeah, he came up to Newcastle in July. He spoke at our event um, and we basically kept in touch ever since and then, you know, discussed projects and then slowly started working together more and more. Thank you. And Smile, maybe touching a little bit more on how did you get involved in the line of work you're currently in? So I was about seven when the war in Bosnia started. And from an early age, I always had this um, urge or desire um, to, to be heard, to tell people what happened in Bosnia. Um, I remember when my dad was taken away. So my dad was taken on the 1st of July, 1993, by the Croatian army. And even then, that kind of that helpless, awful feeling, you know, the frustration, not being able to do anything and just seeing the fear in my mom's eyes and just being worried and scared. Literally, all the men were taken in my hometown. I had this urge, you know, to, to tell people, to tell the world what was happening. And even as a child, I always remember there was always discussions about the international community, the civilized world that didn't really understand what these things were. And we, you know, we lived and experienced such awful things. And my parents always taught me the importance of um, remembering what happened in Bosnia, uh, remembering, but also learning from it as well. So I grew up not only actively trying to remember and ask my parents about what we had been through, but I wanted to learn from it. I wanted to understand what that, uh, you know, what that meant for me. And then in about 2015 or 16, after kind of years of really thinking about it and trying to get the courage to do something with this, and after attending events and reading about it, and every university project that I did up to that point was related to Bosnia, um, I started organizing events. Um, and even organizing events was incredibly difficult. It's draining, triggering. I would have nightmares afterwards. But I think for me, that was always worth it because the pain of the injustice was always worse than the pain of telling my story or being involved with this because the people that committed the atrocities in Bosnia, people that killed and raped members of our family are still living freely in Bosnia. They're celebrated as heroes. So that injustice was eating me up. Um, you know, I was I was really struggling with that, and then seeing that hateful ideology exported across the world. So the the attacks in Norway in 2011, more than 70 or 80 young people that were killed on that island, that was inspired by Serbian ultranationalism. Um, the 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 Christchurch attacks at the mosque in 2019 with the 52 Muslims killed. Again, that was inspired by Serbian ultranationalism. And I remember watching the video of the terrorist driving to the mosque and he was listening to a Serbian ultranationalist, you know, song. So these things um, are always triggering. But as I said, the, the pain of not 
telling our story from Bosnia was always greater. And when there's so much denial of what happened in Bosnia, um, when war criminals are openly celebrated and, you know, Europe and the rest of the world sees this, I felt like I had to speak um, to share my story, to share the story of my family members. And it purely started as a way of getting justice for me and my family. And again, very selfishly, it made me feel better. And then it was only over time that I realized actually the power that my story can have. And for me, the meaning from what we experience in Bosnia comes from what I do with my story. So it's not just about being heard and validated. For me, it's more than that. It's actually, what do we do with that? What do we do with our stories? And for me, that's where the meaning comes from. And for me, it's about warning. Um, it's about saying, look, this is what can happen if, if we are bystanders, if we don't become active members within our communities. And really the work that I do is, is peace building. That's the way I see it. So it started off with very small, difficult and painful steps. Um, and now I share my story, I don't know, sometimes maybe 200 times, uh, 200 times a year. Just as maybe from the opposite side of that, I think your partnership between you guys has been very successful because how I heard about Emmeline and actually eventually Smile was through my friend in Pakistan. So she followed your page, Emmeline, and she said this kind of coincided with when our World 2 launched. So she said, oh, there's like this story you should check out. So she sent me your page and she sent me Smile's post. So that's kind of how we eventually found Smile and asked, well, to interview with us like the first time we met. So, oh I wow, think, that's really cool. Yeah. Via Pakistan, so, love it. Yeah, via Pakistan. <laughs> yeah, and amazing. I think even Pakistan is um, it's interesting because in Pakistan, um, the Bosnian genocide, like Pakistan sent peacekeepers over. So a lot of people know about that part of the Bosnian genocide, but they don't really know like, yeah. much beyond that. And then there was also like a program growing up called Alpha Bravo Charlie. It was a Pakistani show and it showed, I think in the early or maybe late 90s, and it shows a Pakistani soldier going as a peacekeeper to Bosnia. So a lot of kids actually grew up watching this show, even if they were too young to know what the actual Bosnian genocide was. So there's a lot of information around Pakistan. But yeah, that was actually how I heard of both of you for the first time. Well, that's that's really cool. I think it's I think it's such an important reminder when we focus on conflict so much. It's important to remember the amazing tools we have at our disposal now for building peace and that you can, you know, you can, there can be someone on the other side of the world who you've never met from a different culture, speaks a different language, but actually you're on the same team because you want the same thing. And now we have the ability to connect with each other. That's really cool. I'm, I'm glad you, you mentioned that. I think that that's amazing. Love it. No, I was going to say, so how, uh, tell us a bit how you then got into um, kind of focusing on Bosnia because you guys do so much work and um, around Bosnia, Stolac, which is my hometown, which is often completely forgotten. So that was, you know, that was a shock for me seeing you guys focusing on this because actually it's the 30th anniversary this year of the ethnic cleansing of Bosniak Muslims from my hometown. Um, and again, there's no one really focusing on this. There's a very small group of people in Stolac trying to now commemorate and trying to mark that. So for me, it's always amazing. It's always amazing to see you guys sharing stuff about Stolac, sharing Demir's story and, and other people's. Yeah. That. Tell me a bit more about that. If you don't mind. Honestly, I think the journey to start our world too and talk about the Bosnian genocide, well, for me, has kind of always been entwined a little bit because I started off in 2015 as an intern in Saudi for the UNDP 
And that was kind of coincided with when the Yemen war started. And we had IOM kind of in the same building as us. So we used to go as interns to learn more about their work. And we kind of started hearing stories about people who were like seeking refuge in Africa from Yemen. And that was kind of like the first actual exposure I had to talking about people's, well, hearing storytelling in a way that might be useful. But then it kind of just stayed with me that this is just going to end up in a drawer in some case file for the IOM and no one's ever going to know these stories again. And in 2018, we actually decided to go on a family holiday to Bosnia because my sister's in med school. We needed to go somewhere close. And my brother and I both watched Game of Thrones at the time. So like, let's go to Dubrovnik. And my parents were like, oh, if we're going that far, we might as well go to Bosnia. So we ended up in Bosnia and I learned more about the war. And I came back and bought like 10 books and read all of them. Uh, I think in like the span of two months and and the next literally I think a couple of months later we ended up in Jordan as part of our master's degree and we went to refugee camps in Jordan and there was one called Camp Azraq and essentially refugees were being homed in corrugated steel sheets and they were getting second degree burns and people were trying to figure out how to cool down these houses I'm like you're in the desert you had to have known metal would get hot like it's not a huge thing and you had these huge aid organizations thinking they're doing some incredible work and a very long conversation short it kind of came to the point that why aren't you involving refugees in asking or the people in the camps why aren't you involving them they probably have ideas on how to cool down their houses and they're like well all the good ones are gone and what does that even mean how how can inherently someone be a refugee and either be good or bad categorically from the minute you first see them and that just didn't sit right with me so I think literally that night like the idea for our world 2 was born and after hearing about that I took a group of my friends to Bosnia and that's how we met Demir and it kind of just struck that if you keep using language, dehumanizing language, swarm, invader, terrorists, to keep describing refugees and asylum seekers, it's very easy to like legitimize violence against them. And that's exactly what happened in Bosnia with the dehumanization. And that's kind of how those, I guess, paths entwined. And the more I went to Bosnia, the more I spoke to people who had survived the genocide, it just became abundantly clear that a lot, well, this is just how I feel, kind of a lot of the literature doesn't speak to a lot of different places in Bosnia. It's kind of centered around Srebrenica, right, rightly so. Maybe some about Sarajevo. It doesn't really talk about Travnik, Yaitse. It doesn't really talk about Stolac. And that's kind of how we kind of had an offshoot, I guess, of the main work of our world, too, to kind of paint this picture of what happened in Bosnia in different places. And so many people have already said to us, like when we were interviewing them, there were different tactics used everywhere. So Banya Luka, there was something else because the Serbs wanted that as their capital. And then something else, another tactic was used in Sarajevo and Srebrenica. And I think part of it just eventually became painting a picture of what actually happened overall in the Bosnian genocide in different places. So that's kind of why we go to Stolac and aside from that, on the other side, we really love Stolac because our favorite restaurant in Bosnia is there. And we love, really, really like just walking around the city at night. It's, it's very beautiful. I think what, what struck me when, when I was in Stolac and Mostan Zone is how it sort of feels like lots of different places because you've got the Austro-Hungarian influence and the Ottoman influence and a, and a Russian influence. But because, because of that, it feels like its own place because it, it feels like other places, but also like nowhere else, because 
it's almost like a, a world that we're told doesn't exist. We're told that Christians and Muslims don't live side by side. We're told that that it's that you know Muslims are from another world. They're from Asia, and and Euro, uh, Europeans are Christians. And but Bosnia is the embodiment of uh, the physical contradiction of that. It says no, actually, Europe is multicultural, and it ha- it always has been. Um, and and I think it, that's why Bosnia is so important. I think one of the reasons it's so important is because it 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 proves that 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 multiculturalism is is real and that it can exist if people are prepared to work on it. Oh, definitely, and that's what a lot of people, even like this time we went to Bosnia and we took people out there, they were saying that a lot of people are trying to prove that multiculturalism doesn't exist and can't exist in Europe by stoking ethnic interethnic conflict in Bosnia. So it's kind of it was really interesting to kind of hear that side of it from people who are actually still living in Bosnia. But yeah, that was kind of how we started getting involved in speaking about the Bosnian genocide. And then as it evolved, it kind of came out that we are maybe even connected, like you were saying earlier, before making building bridges between different people who had experienced being a refugee at different times. For example, people who like fled Iran in the 70s or people who fled Vietnam, then people who fled Bosnia, the people who fled Palestine or Afghanistan, there's always something mm. underlying it, but people don't make those connections. And that's kind of wanted to show that it hasn't gotten any better for refugees, even though people are saying, oh, we take so many people in and just the general rhetoric hasn't changed at all. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I think I think the well, one thing I've learned from Smiles is so I, I'm very influenced in the work of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa. Uh, when apartheid ended and the, and the country came together to kind of confront what had happened. And what I found really interesting about working with Smio is how many points of connection there were psychologically between the experience of Bosnian Muslims and the experience of black South Africans. And you realize there's, there's this weird kind of paradox, I think, with, with refugees and people who've experienced that kind of conflict and trauma and so on, which is that every story is completely unique. I mean, Smio and his brother have completely different stories, different memories, everything. It's it, There are as many different stories as, as there are refugees. But then on the other hand, there are these themes that are completely universal. And you can talk to a Cambodian or a Colombian or a South African or a Bosnian, and there will be certain themes of, of what they've experienced and how they've dealt with it that will be the same throughout all of humanity. It's this weird, this weird kind of paradox. But um, but yeah, I, I think it's it, it's amazing how... That, that there is this kind of this, I suppose it's humanity, isn't it? There's this deep humanity that runs through all people. Um, and that's, that's what we need to steer people towards, is to say, actually, the difference between, between a, a very privileged, never been a refugee person like me and someone like Smio is just luck. It's pure luck. Yeah. I didn't, it was no skill of mine that I've never, that I've never lived in a country that, that descended into war. Like, I didn't. I didn't cleverly work out how to avoid living in a war zone. I'm just lucky that that's never happened to me. And it could happen to me. It could happen to me tomorrow. Um, and, and I think that's, that's something I would really like us to push more is that, is that refugees are just, just people who were unlucky. And, you know, it can, it can happen anywhere. It's happened in Britain. It happened in Britain during the Second World War. And people forget about that. Thousands of children became refugees in the countryside. They went to other countries. They didn't go to the nearest safe country. They went to where they had connections, where they spoke the language. It's exactly the same. And uh, I'd like to add um, to that, because I completely agree with um, both of you. And I'll come back to your um, 
comments here about how you got involved with the stuff about Bosnia. But that idea of, look, I, I completely agree with that. And I think sometimes people forget that refugees are people just like us with complex lives, with dreams and hopes for the future, with, you know, um, with a past. And they just want to do whatever they can to improve their lives. And um, I spoke or I wrote about something the other day on social media about you know, the current deterrence policies used by the EU just don't work because if you are trying to get your family to safety, there is nothing, there is nothing that you wouldn't do to get your family and yourself to safety. Same as when we left Bosnia. Um, we left Bosnia, we were living as internally displaced people um, for, for a year before my dad was taken. After my dad was taken, my mom was left. My mom was 33, left with three small kids, my mom did everything and anything she could to get us to safety, to keep us safe, to keep us warm, to keep us fed. So I think it, it just shows how little we understand what it means to be a refugee, to put these incredibly inhumane policies. Just what like a couple of days ago, how many people, 500, 600 people died off the coast of Greece and how the, the um, how how European authorities are acting towards um, these refugees is absolutely, absolutely shocking. But I think we also need to be a bit more critical in terms of where do a lot of these refugees come from? Again, I've had people say to me, I literally had someone a couple of months ago say to me, actually, the war finished in Bosnia many years ago. Why are you still here? The guy was drunk, so I didn't get into a long debate. Um, but if he wasn't, I would have told him, well, actually, I am here because my country was placed under international sanctions, which meant that for nearly four years, we were hunted, killed, raped, tortured in the middle of Europe. Europe knew, the so-called civilized world knew, but we were placed under international sanctions. I recently found a newspaper uh, article from 95, I think, where it said, controversial agreement uh, to let the Bosnian Republic defend itself. So that's why I'm here. And the UK government was part of those sanctions. The UK government, led by John Major and Douglas Hurd, had a policy of, uh, of not welcoming Bosnian refugees as a way of maintaining the pressure on Bosnia and not intervening. That was an official UK policy. Um, so the reason I'm here, and the reason my dad spent a, a year, uh, spent several months in a refugee camp, and all my cousins and um, uncles were taken, was because we weren't able to defend ourselves. And again, we need to be a bit more critical and say, where do these refugees come from? Do they come from countries that the UK, that us, that our government has helped to destabilize. And I think if we are critical in that way, and if we ask those questions, I think we'll see that actually we do have involvement in a lot of those countries where refugees are coming from now. And that's something we, as you know, members of the general public need to ask ourselves and think, right, actually, actually, what do we do with that information? Again, if I go back to Bosnia, although the UK government, by, led by John Major and Douglas Heard, was again, uh, against wel welcoming refugees. It was for maintaining sanctions. And they had some horrible views. Again, this is all on record. The archives being released now show some horrible views by Douglas Heard and, and John Major. But the general British public was overwhelmingly in support of welcoming Bosnian refugees and intervening in Bosnia. So the project that my dad and we 
uh, were brought uh, here a part of what it was called the Bosnia project. It was set up in less than 48 hours of the first plane load of Bosnians arriving. And that came as a result of the pressure from the public. So we can make a difference and we can change. So 4,000 Bosnians was supposed to arrive as part of the program. And as far as I know from my research, only 2,000 arrived. Again, I'm not sure why that is, but I think it might have something to do with John Major and Douglas Heard and the views that they held at the time. But we do have a part to play. And I think we can pressure our government and, and we can make a change. And I think we can be a lot more humane or more humane than we are now to the people that are crossing uh, the channel and trying to get to this country. No, you're 100% right. And just to touch on the EU policies, um, I think under, in, under international maritime law, if you see a vessel in distress, you are legally obliged to help that vessel. Now, the EU started using, or Frontex specifically, has started using drones. So that's apparently how they're going to try to get around international law. So if you're not technically in the water, you can't help people. And there have been so many cases of like cargo ships carrying like really expensive cars, helping people aboard, but then they're left at sea for weeks and obviously the cars rust. So no one's going to help anyone anymore. And it's just, and then they have three days of mourning and you're, and you said there and you're, you're really thinking, do you even care about those people? No, you're just going to do it to save face and you don't, you're not going to change policies. Nothing's going to change. There's still going to be people dying at sea and nothing will change since Elan's Kurdi's murder or since he drowned. I think you can call it a murder in some yeah. sense. Since he was murdered by EU policies, nothing has really changed. And we're at the beginning of this as well, yeah. because climate change is going to send refugees across the world in a way that we can't even fathom at this point. We have to get it right. We have an opportunity now to get policies in place and systems in place that, that will work. And we need to do it before the problem gets overwhelming because it's only going to get more severe from this point. And also just Samaya to talk, touch on a point that you mentioned. Firstly, I'm sorry, you had to, you still have to hear comments like that, but it kind of also speaks to what's happening in Syria right now. They're normalizing ties with Bashar al-Assad, even though he committed genocide against his own people, he's still torturing and killing people. But now EU countries and even Turkey, it's, it's not just the EU, um, are pushing to send Syrian refugees back. And even in 2019, Despite what happened in Serbonica, there were even talks of establishing a safe zone within Syria, beside the Turkish border, to be guarded by Turkish police. And you just have to wonder, like, they don't learn. And now they're pushing people back, and Denmark is saying the men can stay because they might be conscripted, but the women have to go back. And completely ignoring the fact that there could be sexual violence used against them. And if you start sending activists back, the entire revolution will literally die, because those are the people that Assad once back in Syria and it's insane that but it, it shows a, f a fundamental disregard for how human beings work because if a if a Syrian man is in Denmark with his wife he's not going to let her go back <laughs> with, 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 without him you know it's 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 that dehumanization again is treating refugees as commodities or as pawns or as you know, it's, I mean, we see it all the time in the UK that it's when, when the government fails on every single front, what they fall back on is, don't worry, we've got the biggest stick to beat the refugees with. And it, 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 I think there's something, there's a deep psychological thing. We saw this in South Africa as well of using a group, projecting all of your failings onto that group when you're the one who has all the power. You know, why South Africans, we had all the power. We had the economy, we had education, we controlled everything. We had the military. 
But anything went wrong, it was the fault of the poor, powerless black people who we oppressed and exploited. And it's and refugees now fulfill that role for so many Western governments. And we see it in America as well. It's it's, you know, the same the same patterns playing out uh, on, on the Mexican border that we that we see here. Exactly the same thing. I'll stop the boats as they build the wall. No, I was going to say, I think, again, the Bosnian community is proof what can be achieved if there's a will to actually try and um, to try and do just the minimum thing. You know, the Bosnian, the Bosnia project was set up in less than 48 hours, like super quick. So we can do these things. But again, it's, as you both said, refugees are currently being used in Europe um, for political gain. We keep refugees in hotels. We purposely slow down the, the processing of asylum claims and so on to create this, to manufacture this problem so we can use it for political gains. But we a political game, but then we forget that these are human beings, that you know, these are people just like us. And sadly in, in, in Europe we, we don't see, and I think it's not just a European problem, we see across the world. It's like we don't see these people that are fleeing, that are going through the most awful things. We just don't see them as human beings. Like we don't. If if you see a boat, you know, full of people and you, you can keep them there. You can you you can you can watch them sink, knowing that there are hundreds of kids on board. I mean, instead of calling them refugees, what if we called them football fans or people of faith or whatever? You know, it's it's that it's that. I sometimes think we should refer to people seeking refuge. I know it's more of a mouthful, but I feel like the word refugee has been has been tainted by misuse. Mm-hmm so much that it's almost i mean i see it on twitter where people almost use refugee as a as a slur i think you will you you know you lose when i see british people doing that i think you're losing touch with your own history because we all come from refugee stock we all have ancestors who had to flee persecution or flee because of conflict or that is part of the human condition and 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 i think you that, that, that there's a kind of a, a denial of one's own humanity when you deny the humanity of other people that was the big lesson of the anti-apartheid movement was that that actually white people had been dehumanized by by our dehumanization of black people and it's exactly the same the same with refugees and it's just to add to that maybe from a different context it's really sad in pakistan you'll hear the rhetoric against afghan refugees and i'm i'm looking at this person like wasn't your granddad literally a refugee during partition like you came here as a refugee. The only reason you're here now is because you're a refugee. Like my grandmother was a refugee because of partition. And then when you hear all of these stories, but then you hear literally their grandkids, not even 70 years later, turning around and saying, oh, the Afghans are the problem here. And I'm just like, no, they're really not. Well, black South Africans do the same thing with, with refugees from other parts of Africa. And they end up treating them the same way that the apartheid government tro- tro- treated them. And and I think it's that's why it's a human problem. You know, yeah. we all have the ability to to connect with others, to see others as human. And we all have that ability to oppress and shun and dehumanize. It's it's across cultures and, and races. And unfortunately, and unfortunately, there's a lot of it recently during the Turkish elections. And some of the participants from our world who were sending me newspaper clippings and video clips and there was a lot of things just being referred to oh they're genetically less than us they don't deserve to be here we should push them all back they don't know what they're like they're the reason for all of our problems and you're like 
the EU isn't going to accept you if you start hating on refugees. Secondly, like it's in Lebanon. It's you can hear it in you hear in Pakistan, you hear it in Turkey, and then you hear it in Europe as well. And you're just like sad to be honest, because there's no empathy that exists for anyone. I'm like it could be anyone. And in Pakistan, it's it's funny when they say it because you're like 33 million people were just displaced because of a flood. We are most likely to be affected by climate change, and there's likely to be large refugee movements from Pakistan because of climate change. And but you have the audacity to sit there and talk badly about Afghan refugees. Okay, can I ask you guys a huge question? Because both of you obviously think about this stuff in a tremendous amount of detail. You know a lot about it. If if I could make you joint world presidents for you know for the next five years, what would you change? What what would happen differently? What would be what would be some policies that you put in place that would that would improve the conditions and the experiences of refugees one when refugees arrive in a country i wouldn't put them in camps like i'm sorry that's not a way to integrate that's not a way to make them feel welcome at all definitely a more efficient asylum system you cannot have an asylum system that puts the onus on someone whose high school was blown up to show you a degree it, it makes no sense and a, a lot faster and a lot more efficient it's something that takes empathy into consideration when they're talking or and also in something into consideration about the country it doesn't have to be at war for it not to have for it to be unlivable it, there could be so many other factors and it shouldn't just be based on like historic data like seven or eight years old which is what a lot of the asylum cases are unfortunately based on and yet yeah, legal roots let's bring those into consideration if a war does break out there have to be routes for people to come into a country like and just touching on passport privilege quickly my friend from lebanon couldn't apply she applied for a visa to come to the uk but they rejected it because they said there wasn't enough evidence that she wouldn't claim asylum here and you're expecting the same system to start giving out visas when some let's say something happens in lebanon tomorrow and there's a legitimate refugee flow you're expecting them to turn around and be like, yeah, we suddenly recognize that you might need protection. You can come to our country. That's another thing that needs to be addressed, like actually having legal systems that work and that don't have, I would say quota systems because not everyone is going to come to the UK, to be honest. Yeah, I, I would love as a global community to sit down and work out how many refugees there are, what the relative wealth of each country is and work out what a fair proportion of refugees would be to me that's the obvious thing to do i mean lebanon has what over two million syrians that's that's crazy it's smaller it's poorer than than the uk why on earth should they have to take such a a huge burden so you know we work out some kind of some kind of system which proportional and there are many countries rich countries in particular are not taking their fair share you know uganda has massively more refugees than than the uk there are loads of countries around the world that are that are pulling taking so much more of that burden it's not fair but also just to add to that maybe when especially in protracted refugee crises like palestine for example to be able to give them the rights of a citizen without denying their right for return because i know countries like jordan do that so if you come out of if it was 1948 during the nakba you you as a palestinian refugee in jordan would be given the nationality 1967 they stopped giving the nationality because that they basically argued that it was against the right of return. If they're Jordanian, that means they can't claim to be Palestinian. So taking into account that people could be refugees for an infinite amount of years. Both very good and thoughtful answers. I can tell you guys have thought about this a lot. I would just add one thing. Any country that helps to destabilize another country in any way has to take um, clear steps 
to welcome refugees, support refugees, help to support rebuild that country, stabilize that country. I think that should be a general rule. And I think we'd see a different approach to uh, in terms of politics and how, you know, how we treated, how or how we treat um, countries that we we kind of perceive as uh, kind of, um, we see them less than us somehow in terms of development, in terms of culture. It's, it, it's again, it's the, this dehumanizing nature narrative that um, we sometimes see countries against others. So I, I think as a general rule, if you've helped to stabilize a country, then for, for me, for me, a general rule where when the UK was part of those sanctions in 1991, from that point on, from 1991, whatever the date was, I had every right, same right as every other British person here, even though I didn't arrive until 1994. But if, 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 if they disadvantaged us, which led to 100,000 deaths, up to 60,000 young girls and women raped, thousands in concentration camps, we were prevented. So the question has to be asked, it's like, where, where, where does complicity kind of stop? How, how do we view these things? So for me, from that point, that's how I think about these things. I had every right that every other British person had from that point on. That's, that's the way I see it. I hope you're not suggesting that Britain has destabilised a country, Smyo. That's, out, even. that's that's outrageous. <laughs> no, I would never say that. Israel and Palestine and, and the partition of India and, you know. Let's not talk about the what? What? That's a bit of a touchy what are you guys saying? <laughs> wow, you guys, what, what? I mean, it's an interesting idea, isn't it? Are you going to, you know, where, where these conflicts come from? What drives it? The economics of it? The, the whites and some people's interests to destabilize different parts of the world. Yeah. But, uh, but I, also, I also think there's, there's, a bit of a, there's a bit of a trap getting into the political side of things, which is, in a sense, that's, that's not massively relevant to the experience of an individual refugee. I mean, so what if, you know, if, you, if you're a refugee who, let's say you have a democratically elected government that ends up oppressing a, a, a group of people so so what like you you are still a legitimate refugee um and and i think it's you know you you look at syria where most people weren't particularly didn't particularly have a horse in either or a dog in either fight they weren't they weren't particularly supporting any side in, in the conflict they just wanted to be safe um and and I, and i think that we can we can get too much into the politics and really if a refugee turns up that that person isn't safe in their country, it's like you were saying here, you know, maybe that maybe there isn't even a war in their country, but they're still a legitimate refugee. Um, we need to, you know, see it more on the human scale sometimes than than the political scale. I, I understand what you're saying, and I completely agree as well. But I think it's also important to be aware of the politics as well. Absolutely, it's, it's, it's both. Be, yeah, yeah, it's it's important to be aware that actually. Bosnians were prevented from defending themselves. Um, you know, when it comes to Bosnia, people often speak about a slow international response. But it wasn't slow. It was actually very quick. You prevented, the international community prevented Bosnians from defending themselves and then watched. I'm sorry, when people say, oh, we didn't know what was happening. I'm sorry, it was incredibly well documented. So many British journalists 
British journalists risked their lives, and I met so many of them, risked their lives to go to Bosnia to document what was happening. Recently, I'm not going to name her, I spoke to a, a British journalist who was in Bosnia in the 90s, I'm not going to say where, um, but she was trying to get the stories out of Bosnia, and I think this was around 93, and she was visiting all these places where massacres of Muslims had happened and so on, and her editor in London said, you know, I'm not interested this isn't our war. We shouldn't be there. I'd want to write something else. And she said, what? Like, I've just spent a week risking my life trying to, you know, there's people killed, babies, women, children. And the editor was like, no, what you're going to write is something completely different. Write that this isn't our war. We shouldn't be there. British soldiers shouldn't be dying. We need to leave straight away. And she refused. And he said, right, I'm going to write it for you. And you're going to sign it. And she said, no. And this editor tried to ruin her career. And she moved to London because she stuck to her principles and she, she didn't do that because she wit witnessed these things. So for me, that context is important, the same as now what's happening in Bosnia. You have um, fascists, you have war criminals openly celebrated as heroes. You have Croat and Serb nationalists, politicians, openly embracing convicted war criminals, openly celebrated Nazi, celebrating Nazis from the Second World War. And these people are described as champions of European values by EU officials. And so for me, politics is, is, is linked to all of that. And why are so many Bosnians leaving Bosnia now? Something like 150 or nearly 200,000 Bosnians have left in the last 18 months. It's like, why are they leaving? There's not a war there. You know, it's been 30 years since the war, but they are leaving because they have fascists that are being propped up by the international community. There are fascists that are being um, uh, put into power by the, by members of the international community. So, the, the, I, whereas, you know, I completely agree, but also we need to make sure that the, the, the public is also educated in terms of um, political impact and what our representatives are doing across the world. And Bosnia, for me, is a perfect example of that. You know, in my, uh, in, in, in where I spent um, the, that war period in Mostar, um, there was a concentration camp, and uh, but it was a concentration camp for m primarily Muslims, for men, boys and men, um, some women as well, raped, um, People killed. There was also Serb and Roma and other people there as well. Um, it was a camp run by uh, uh, the Croatian army or Bosnian Croats. Now the Croatians are opening a museum in that complex, a museum for the Bosnian Croat forces. Do you think they'll teach about that history? Of course they won't. You know, and again, this is happening. The international community is aware of this. The international community allows this to happen. And that's just one example. There are so many awful examples. You know, there's the rape hotel in, in Bosnia as well, where more than 200 women were raped and killed and awful things happened. Again, that's on TripAdvisor. People have campaigned to try and get it down from TripAdvisor. I'm not even sure if it's still on there now or not. Last time I checked, it was. So these things happen. Uh, on the 9th of January, the Bosnian Serbs parade in Republika Srpska in the Bosnian Serb-dominated region, which is the start of the Bosnian genocide. So the, these things are happening openly in Europe, and Europe is aware of this, um, but there's no will to actually stop this or, or for, this, um, for, for this to kind of to be challenged in any way. And then when you have things like 
that happened in Norway in 2011 and Christchurch and other white supremacist attacks that have been inspired by Serbian or Croat ultranationalism. Right now, I think there are more than 300 Serbs and Croats fighting in Ukraine, either on the Serbian, uh, uh, the Russian side or the Ukrainian side. And again, what happens in Bosnia is not just a Bosnian problem. It's a global, it's a regional problem. Um, and I worry what will happen when we don't challenge these things. But the current politics, European politics and British politics is not helping Bosnia. It's making things worse. And that's why there are so many Bosnians leaving at the moment. Also, I think it's all the international community is very much um, helping the Croat and Serb nationalists in Bosnia. And the fact that it's gotten to a point that there can even be talk of a museum opening for Croat forces when cases like, this is what we learned recently in Bosnia, when cases like Heliodrome, you haven't even started yet. That's insane to even think about. It's been 30 years and we met someone who'd also been in a concentration camp in Mostar and he said about 50% of the inmates have already passed away and the longer it goes on, there's going to be no one to testify and they will be forgotten. And if p things like the museum start springing up everywhere, they will literally just rewrite history. And I, I honestly, the international community is aiding it, if anything else. Yeah, I think I completely agree with you. Again, this the, the leader of the Croat nationalist, Dragan Čović, he's, he's a nationalist, he's a fascist. You know, he used um, prisoners of war as a labor during the war. There are documents, you know, it's all proven. His signature is there and so on. Um, you know, he openly speaks about reviving Hetzek Bosna. And Hetzek Bosna was the Croat statelet in Bosnia. Um, its entire senior uh, political and military leadership convicted of a joint criminal enterprise, crimes against humanity and so on and so on in Bosnia. Um, you know, this this guy that shows, shares like really extreme views and, you know, um, EU representatives call him the champion of European values. And for me, the first time I heard of European values was from Bosnian Croat nationalists, from Croat nationalists. And, you know, that for me tells me everything that I need to know about um, European values. But yeah, so, you know, these people are being propped up because Bosnia has been disused as a tool. Um, for regional, you know, political games. So I worry what will happen in Bosnia, but I also worry because, you know, what happens in Bosnia won't stay in Bosnia. And we've already seen that these things will be will be exported. And maybe just asking another question around that. What, through your partnership, what do you hope to achieve? And why do you think, this is a question to both of you, and why do you think it's so important to amplify the voices of people with lived experience of displacement and genocide survivors? So why why is it important to amplify voices? I think fundamentally, I mean, the, the biggest, deepest answer I could give is because the truth is really important. Whenever we are, I mean, we're seeing this at the moment in the UK, the conflagration around Boris Johnson. The reason that is so poisonous and toxic is because we cannot even sit down and have a conversation about how the country should be run if our leaders aren't honest. That's the starting point. And then we discuss tax rates and property and NHS and everything else. So what frustrates me at the moment is that pe people don't know the truth about refugees. People don't know the the complexity of what it is to be a refugee, um, of the people um, attribute the worst possible motives to refugees that they are 
cynical people who don't love their families, they don't love their children, they want to come here and start a war, just the worst things you can possibly imagine. And the thing is, that's not true. And until we, ha until people know the truth about refugees, we cannot have a productive conversation about how to best deal with the issue of refugees, how many we should take or you know, how we should provide schools or education or how they should assimilate into society, if they should assimilate, if they should integrate, you know, what all of those complex issues. We cannot begin to have those conversations until we are being honest with each other about what's happening. So I, one of the reasons I, I love working with Smyo and I think his story is so important is because he he has in in a sense i always think of smyo as almost like a like a a um a portal to the future where we can see what a refugee can be in the future you know smyo is you know he's economically productive you know he's got a, a a good job and everything he pays his taxes all that kind of stuff but he's also a good friend you know his brother's a doctor who worked in through the covid pandemic his 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 nephews and nieces are you know born and raised in newcastle they're part of the community it's so important i think to give people that sense of this this is what a refugee is they are not just that moment of crisis they are a person with with a past with a history and they are a person with a future as well um and i think that's incredibly important not least to allay people's fears I can't hear about somebody talking about, oh, refugees are so scary, they're so dangerous. The first person I think of is Smyo. And I think what a good friend Smyo has been to me over the last few years. And and I think that that humanization that happens through storytelling, through really sitting down and, and listening carefully to what someone has been through, what effect that has had on them, I think that is one of the most important things about being a human being, because not only do you learn about their life, but you learn more about your own life as as well. I mean, I, I actually think this the the work that we do is even bigger than than the issue of refugees. It's about being a human being. It's about contending with differences, listening to people who have had different experiences. And one thing I I noticed that I didn't expect from working with Smyo is how much his story has completely changed the way that I think about my own story, that I think about South Africa, uh, that I think about black South Africans and what they went through. Um, and and his, his, his mom in particular and her message of, um, of not hating the perpetrators of the terrible things that they went through, that, you know, I feel like I've grown as a person. I'm a better person through having heard Smyo's story. So I think... With our book, and we're trying to find a publisher at the moment, so who knows? Maybe it will never be published. But but one thing I can guarantee is anyone who reads it will be a better person from having read it, because Smyo's story is so important, just for what it what it is to be a human being, what it is to have a family who you love, what it is to experience trauma and have to contend with that, what it is to turn your pain into something productive and something that can make the world a better place. You know, Smyo uh, always talks about, and I think it's the most beautiful idea, is that peace is not just the absence of conflict. Peace is all of the actions that we take to make conflict less likely. And Smyo is actively engaged in peacemaking. He wages peace on a daily basis. And I think to be a fully actualized, rooted, developed human being you need, in some sense, to be a peacemaker, to be willing to build peace at work, in your family, in your society more broadly. And I think that's that's the power of Smyo's story, is how, is how you, whatever you've been through in your life, you can 
draw a constructive message from it and you can use it to make the world a better place. So that's what that's I think. Really good, <laughs> no, it's you. It's you, Smile. You, you, that you was are, great. I mean, I, I'm going to embarrass you, but you are the most inspirational person I've ever met. So it is, it's easy to, to, you know, to, to, to talk about how incredibly powerful and important your story is. It no, is. It's... No, you're not embarrassing me. Tell me more. Tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> and probably your modesty is your, your greatest uh, my, achievement. My best bit, yeah. Your greatest quality, yeah. No, ab- absolutely. I think I think I think your story it's 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 about more than war and refugees and politics and all of that kind of stuff. It is it is you know there 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 the little bits the little moments that you that you have shared with me that have just and that reminded me of of stories I've heard from apartheid South Africa, you know. So I'll I'll give an example because I think it's it's important to give an example when Smyo um, left his home for the first time. This is before they were ethnically cleansed, but they left their home because the, the fighting was getting closer. And he walked through this this um, river valley with his with his extended family, and he was walking with his dad's cousin Lika. And Smyo tripped and began to 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 cry. And I, and I remember you saying Smyo that you you couldn't remember if it was that you really did trip or that you just almost needed an excuse to be able. to to cry because you needed to let that out. And Lika took him to a tree and they sat down and he picked up a stone and he carved their names on the stone. And he said, we'll leave the stone here under this tree and one day we'll come back and we'll find the stone and we'll be able to go back to our village and we'll be able, effectively, we'll be able to carry on with our lives. And that, and, and Smyre said to me that that stone was, was like, usually when we carve someone's name on a stone, it's a gravestone. That's the, one of the most common places we do that. And the gravestone says this person was here and they mattered and they will be remembered and they will be, their memory will literally be carved in stone. But that stone was almost like a monument for the living because what it said to Smyo is that we are still alive, there's still hope, and one day we will be, we will be able to come back and we will be able to pick up our lives where, where, we, where we left them. And it reminded me of the, uh, the story, a story that my grandmother um, shared. So she, she in the 1960s, she campaigned for a guy called Gilbert Nonpozzolo, who had, um, under, under apartheid laws, he had he lost his job and he had therefore lost the right to live in the place where he lived because of the past laws. And he wasn't legally allowed to live anywhere because he couldn't, he couldn't go back to where he was born because he didn't have a job and he wasn't paying taxes there and he couldn't stay where he was. And my grandmother drove him around, all around Cape Town and the Western Cape, trying to find somewhere where he could live, somewhere where he could be. And I, I think of that, that stone and that, the importance of that. You know, We all need to feel that we matter and that we have a place that belongs to us. One of the things living things need, I wrote this in, in, in our book actually, but we always think that living things need, you know, they need oxygen and they, they, um, they need um, sunlight and they need water and so on. But living things also need a place. You need to, you need to physically be somewhere. It, does, it, 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 it doesn't matter if a shark has, you know, food to eat and, and water and all the rest of it, if it cannot physically be anywhere in the world. And, and uh, uh, Gilbert Nompozolo said that he felt that the, the way that he was treated by the apartheid government had left his children as orphans, even though he was still alive. So because he didn't have a place to be, 
it was like a kind of a living death and and i i, I think of that yeah that that and that came out of a smile story that realization i think that that we all need a place to be and i've always had a place to be i've always i've always had a home and i think i never appreciated the importance of that until until i heard smile's story and that's something universal for all of us we all need a place to be um we all need we all want to feel significant we we all i remember moving houses as a kid and writing my name somewhere and that feeling of like a bit of me will always belong to this place. And I think those, those so stories like that are so important because I think everyone who moved house as a kid likes the idea of writing their name somewhere in the old house and, and a part of them being there. And I think that is one of the many ways in which refugees are just like us. We all have the instinct to be a refugee. I always say if, you, if, you, if you've ever opened the window on a hot day or you've ever moved out of the rain, you've ever gone somewhere to be more comfortable or to be safer, then you have the instinct to be a refugee because that's what a refugee is doing. They're moving away from the danger. They're moving away from the uncomfortable situation and they're trying to find a better place to be. Um, and, and the more, the more of Smyo's story I, I hear, the more, the more universal it becomes. Smyo, what do you think? <laughs> I think you summarized it well. You've quoted yourself. You quoted me. <laughs> I mean, you're good at this stuff. As I once uh, said. <laughs> but no, I think I, I think you summarized it far better than than I ever could. Um, sorry, my headphones keep uh, falling out. Well, I just but want yeah, to jump in you... while you're fixing your headphones because that's not uh, that's actually not true. Because the best bits, the best bits of our book, the most profound things, and this is why I was prepared to work with you, is because you have such an amazing way of capturing these things, of of putting them into into words. It's, you know, when you say peace is more than the absence of 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 war, it's like all the all the actions that you take to stop war from happening. I'm like, whoa, that's mind blowing. It's so true. It's so important. So, um, you know, the the, the best. The best phrasing is always yours, but sorry, go on. Very kind of you. Thank you. Um, but yeah, kind of, you know, the politics aside, I always feel like I have to touch upon the politics as well. Um, but politics aside, what we try and do is we try and humanize the story or my story from Bosnia, a child's experience from Bosnia. Um, we've spoken about or we've written about so many different things in Bosnia. Uh, from Bosnia in the book, but it's not necessarily just about Bosnia. It's not necessarily just about refugees, as Amon said. And you don't have to be in a refugee to have experienced some of the things that I've experienced. You know, these are universal feelings, universal emotions of anxiety and pressure and stress and fear and so on. And through the book, we kind of encourage people to reflect on their own experiences and, and on their own lives. Um, and I think for me, the reason I wanted Emmeline to be involved with this is because I could have just told the story myself in terms of, you know, just narrating it, writing it down. I've had other people approaching me to tell my story. But what I think Emmeline is so good at, so amazing at, is taking these things, taking these ideas, taking my words and kind of trying to pinpoint the themes and kind of like reflecting on them. It's not just me telling the story. So there's a bit of that as well. But then it's through the discussions that Emily and I have and how we reflect on these things, how I reflect on the things that I experience now 30 years later, you know, is different to how I um, kind of reflected on them even five, 10 years ago. So Emily has helped me to confront 
that history to confront that past. And I think that was probably the first time that I told my story with Emlyn from start to finish. And it was difficult. And there was times when um, we would pause for like three months because I was having flashbacks and, you know, I was having nightmares and I was really, really struggling. Um, but it's helped me to, to, to heal in so many ways. It's helped me to find the, the, the meaning um, to all of that, because I think, you know, that, that's something that I'll spend my whole life searching, you know, and trying to understand, you know, logically the most illogical things, you know, like it's very difficult to understand the things that we experience in Bosnia. But Emlyn has helped me to process a lot of that. And for me, and through the journey that we've been on together, I realized that actually it's, 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 it's about what I do with the story. It's like, for me, that's where the meaning comes from. And for me, it's, it's using my story, using my experience to do something positive with it. And I couldn't have done that myself. I couldn't have done that um, without Emlyn. And as I said, it's far more than just a book about Bosnia, far more than a book about um, refugees. I think Emlyn has done an incredible job um, to kind of package all this. And obviously it's my story, so I'm not being very modest here. But I think Emelyn has genuinely done an incredible job trying to piece this all together because I rant, as you can tell, I rant and I start with you one do story, rant. then I finish, then I finish, <laughs> then I finish with another one. So it's it's been difficult. It's been difficult, but that process of telling has been important for me, and it is important for me. But um, and and I think Emelyn has been a key part of that, and I think we've we've created something. Um, special and again not being very modest or humbled yeah but I think it's mainly because it's Emil and he did all the hard work but I think yeah all you, you know, did was got... live through live through a genocide I mean really me <laughs> me sitting typing in my room was the real the real hard work wasn't it but, uh, but I think what you've hit incredible is, is the power of storytelling that it is it rehumanizes my inspiration for that comes from the truth and reconciliation commission where through the act of people there's something about storytelling where you get all of the pain and all of the trauma and all of the mess and the history and the confusion. And by putting it into words, you contain it and you say it has a form and it has a size and it has a structure. And by, by doing that over and over again, I think it, it helps to make sense of it. Um, and we are, human beings are created by other people's stories. Desmond Tutu said that, that he, he was a big believer in this philosophy of Ubuntu, which I subscribe to as well, which says that all of humanity is like one substance. We're, like, we're almost like water. And we are created through our relationships with other people. We are made for each other and we are made by each other. So when you hear somebody else's story and when you tell your story, you are helping to create everyone who hears that story. I think that's what's, what's important about our, our book, which only emerged over time, was that, was that our book has a teller of the story, Smio, but it also has a listener. And every story has a teller and a listener. And, and if you li it's not just about somebody telling their story. There are lots of, lots of refugees telling their stories and no one's listening. We need to talk about how to listen as well and what listening re re really means. What, what do you think about listening, Hira? Because I can see that, that kind of struck a chord with you. Just going to say one, it's absolutely incredible listening to your bromance and your partnership but <laughs> mostly about the partnership it's one is having the strength to actually tell the story despite knowing how difficult it will be and kind of reliving like the most horrific moments of your life but also then having someone who's willing to listen 
because I feel I've worked in the humanitarian sector and a lot of the times the organizations will be asking but they're not listening and then they will only have a lens on it okay just say what we did and that's all we want from you and if you go to a child in a refugee camp and they're literally sitting on the Greek coast and their their tents are flooded but then you're like oh we have we've given you this new bag just take a picture of it and that's it you know that's not storytelling that's just fundraising like let's get real that's not helping anyone and I think so many people definitely within the humanitarian sector have to get comfortable with the idea of being uncomfortable no organization ever gets it 100 percent right you will mess up but you have to learn from what you've done in the past to be able to do better in the future and i just think when it comes to listening you have to give people a, a platform or yeah the platform but then let them speak for themselves some of it will be very raw some of it will be very emotional some people won't say as much because that's just how they rationalized it or that's as much as they're comfortable sharing and i feel there aren't enough spaces like that because a lot of the time it's always th- told through one lens or told through for a certain organization or people are just guided to make to say specific answers. And another thing I've kind of seen a lot of within the sector is that they'll choose like five people to platform and that's that's it. They will never platform anyone else. They will never talk to the sixth, seventh, eighth person because their stories either don't say what they want them to say or they can't be willing to inv- they're not willing to invest in media training or psychosocial support even and a lot of the organizations do have huge capacity and budgets for this so i just think having a, sp- a safe space within which they can share the stories and also someone who's actively actually listening without trying to put their own lens on things is very very important so i think what you're doing is absolutely incredible I must say it's difficult. We, we all come with a lens, don't we? We all come with with prejudices and assumptions and um, and 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 I think that the you know the job of, of being a listener is difficult, especially if you then if I imagine if you're in one of these organizations that you refer to is that you then have to take action based on on what you've listened to. you know there's there's a real practical kind of implementation of of that listening. Um, and that's always it's always going to be challenging but but all the growth all of the improvement all comes outside the comfort zone that's that's where things get better none of us ever become better by being in the comfort zone and listening to what we want to hear um so yeah so i i think there's you know maybe there's there's some training to be done in terms of how to listen not just in terms of you know, like you say, providing the platform. Like the platform's great, but not if not if you stand up there and no one hears what you're saying. I think organisations. I think what you uh, what you both mentioned. That I think organisations need to ask themselves: Why are we doing this? Who does this benefit? I've worked with far too many organisations where they think, and if I'm being honest, I've thought the same for years that we should be grateful for having the platform to tell the story, and um, without understanding how much energy it takes to actually tell the most intimate parts of our lives to stand up in front of people to to like it's 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 incredibly difficult and you know i've worked with organizations that should know better but they take that approach and i think they should organizations need to again it's that part of it's the listening part it should be asking right what do you want to get from this who does this serve who will this help where what do you want to do with your story and for me again it's about what i do with that it's not just about being heard it's not about someone nodding away and saying oh my god it's so incredibly difficult what you experience it's actually saying right 
What do we do with this? What difference will this make? Who will this help? Because again, there, there have been organizations that will just do it as a tick box thing to try and get more funding. Um, but who does this actually serve? Who does this benefit? And I, I personally think that organizations should ask themselves these questions um, and spend time before it's shared publicly, before it's recorded, before those people are platformed, put in the effort to try and understand what that person has experienced. What do they want to get from this? And then, right, think about, okay, how do we help that person achieve that? Because there's been times, I remember once doing an interview, and we literally did about three hours. And then at the end, the guy was like, oh, we can only use about two minutes, just a news bulletin. It's just that I was really fascinated, and you're such a charismatic person, and I wanted to hear more. And I was, like, exhausted by the end of it. I was absolutely exhausted. And then I watched the news report. Honestly, it was, like, 30 seconds. And this was like at the start of my kind of journey, you know, sharing, like now I react to those things differently, but then that destroyed me. That honestly absolutely destroyed me. And he was nice, this person, he wanted to hear, he wanted to kind of learn more. And since he's reached out to me more and we've done different things together, but like that hurt. And I feel like there's far too many organizations that should know better. But I feel like they use people that have, you know, whatever they've experienced in the past, I feel like we that listening bit is often forgotten about. And I feel like we need to spend more time thinking about that. I echo everything that both of you have just said. And it's sad to see people commodified, essentially, whenever they need to be pulled off a shelf, their story is used, and then nothing. They don't follow up with them. They don't really give them any sort of support afterwards. And it's I don't even know if training is really needed for this. I mean, if you go to work, any standard conversation, hi, how are you? How's the weather? And that's all you're going to know about your colleague. But then you expect someone who's been through something so traumatic to lay everything out and just get like a pat on the back and be like, yeah, thanks, man. We'll, we'll use it for our next campaign. And then you never hear from them again. And it speaks a lot to the fact that this um, it's meant to be a sector that helps people, but it... Um, Sometimes does so here, can I ask a controversial question? What yeah. What do you think of the of of how much or to what extent refugees or uh, should be paid for telling their story? If they are, if if it is a commodity that they're providing, and I think actually in a sense it is a commodity because if if a, if a charity or an organisation is advertising with that story and they're using it to raise funds, yeah. it is it is a commodity. So so what what do you think of the money side of it? I think the money side, whenever you choose spokespeople or whenever you choose people who are celebrities, people who are influencers, you, you pay the money. They don't just, not a lot of people do stuff out of goodwill, to be honest. Maybe the bigger charities, but um, there should be some sort of monetary compensation. If not that, at least enough training for people to be able to handle media questions, to be able to say no to questions that they're not happy with or something that's beneficial both ways, not something that goes one way i can't really put a budget on it because i think it'll depend on the charity but there definitely has to be some sort of two-way relationship built there and not just someone exploiting someone's story yeah i, I definitely feel like that the, there's a sense of that you sort of you having the chance to tell your story is the prize it was like what's my i was saying you you should be grateful that we that we've even given you this platform and it's the same with people who work in the creative fields you know people musicians and so on and someone will say oh we'll use your song and you'll get exposure well exposure is not gonna gonna pay the rent and i know with with smire you know smire spends a huge amount of time traveling preparing you know you don't just get up and tell your story you plan it you have to write it down that that's all time which has a value and and you know i i think there's a there's a real and it 
you know, from organizations that should know better, that are supposed to be representing people who've been through something traumatic. And there is a, there is a huge willingness to just, to just exploit that and, and use it without compensating. Just saying, I'm, obviously I don't have lived experience of displacement, but sometimes when you're brought into a room as the only, let's just say, person of color or your diversity hire, whatever you are, there's this, it's the same thing that like you should be happy to be here because someone finally gave you a spot. And I think a lot of that actually led me to start our world too, because so many people were like, oh, you can just do this. Or how do you believe in this cause? You're Muslim. You shouldn't be able to believe in this cause. And I have to start telling religious texts during interviews and stuff. And you're like, this doesn't make any sense to me. And I don't know why I should be thankful for you. I have the skills. I have the voice. I'm going to do it by myself. I don't need you to do this. And at any point like and you see a lot now on TikTok and Instagram and social media has helped a lot with this. so many people are telling their own stories who have lived experience of displacement it's amazing because they don't have the same restrictions they would have had if they went through another organization and I think that's absolutely incredible yeah I think I must say I think TikTok in particular is amazing for that and I've I've noticed I've, I've got quite a few um disabled creators that I follow and it's so refreshing to see somebody with disabilities just being a person yeah. and you realize how how often our view of of disability and you know lots of other things of course but but it, the one that's really struck me is disability and to see people just being their authentic selves and putting it out there with nobody gatekeeping it and nobody telling them what to say or how to say it and it's great to see disabled people you know being angry with the way that they're treated being sad about something one day and then the next day being in a really good mood and being really happy and just being a, a three-dimensional human being it, it's it's revolutionary i think that that the access to that kind of unfiltered platform is just amazing yes yes in terms of platforming yeah i think that's something that i've struggled with for a long time in terms of payment and so on but i've got to the stage so this year so far i literally just checked um, this morning, I think I've only done about fifty events or fifty-five events, uh, which isn't <laughs> Take, taking it slow. Which isn't Damn. as as. Uh, but what I'm doing now is Something I'm being retired. more selective. <laughs> I'm being more selective in terms of which organisations I work with, how I engage with them. Um, I always ask now for expenses. Always, I just um, whereas in the past I even struggled with that. Um, and now that I've set up Bosnian Genocide Education Trust, I always say um, um, make a donation as well. Because as Emlyn said, if you spend time researching, preparing, writing a talk, writing a workshop, um, especially if it's with, um, for organisations that I know have a lot of funding, have a lot of money, these are big national organisations, um, you know, in the past I've struggled to even ask them and they should have known better. That's the that's the thing. They should have known better to pay at least my expenses. But I've worked with some organisations I haven't. But I'm lucky that I work with some incredible organisations like Holocaust Memorial Day Trust, who are absolutely incredible. Uh, and they've always supported me. They've always paid. If I go down to London, they'll pay for my hotel. They'll pay for my food and so on. And they've been amazing from the start. And I feel like I've learned from that. But now I always say, you know, if I'm traveling, that's fine. Uh, you know, if I'm going to Manchester, it's going to be a train. You know, if I'm staying over, it's going to be a hotel. And I think it's completely normal to ask that if, if you know, um, if because it's rehumanization. It's it, it, it is, it's fundamental. You know, you are a human being and a human being, you know, has bills to pay. And I, yeah. I, I feel like it's so fundamental. Like you, I don't know how you can 
talk about refugees' rights and campaign for them and so on, but at the same time, not you know expect them to work for free for you. It's yeah. it, it's completely contradictory. Especially when the entire program runs on their stories. Yeah, but the book. Emelyn can do a quick sum- summary of the book now because he's done such a good job at summarizing it before. So we are looking for a publisher. Uh, we are in discussions with one or two agents, actually. We've got one which I think is interesting, which I'm hoping I'm hoping something positive will come from that. Um, but the, the book, I think Emelyn's done a great job on the book. And Emelyn, do you want to just do a quick summary of what the I wish you'd warned about me about these? this before, Smyre. Come on, you, you, you know it. Come on, you've listened to me talk for well, the last... Well, okay, let me, let, me see, let me see what I can pull out the hat. So, our, so, so the, the story, I mean, fundamentally, it's about Smyre's experiences during the war as a child. But it is also, as I said, about being a listener, about how those of us who hear these stories contend with them. So our book is told in two timelines. It's told in the past, flashbacks to the past, which are told in the present tense. So nine-year-old Smayo is in Mostar. He is doing this in the present. And then there's our conversations in the present, which are told in the past tense. So I sat with Smayo and he said, when I was a child, X, Y, and Z happened. And then we go into the flashback. The reason we've done it that way is because because of the traumatic nature of what Smyo experienced. In some sense, the past is always present for him. That is the nature of trauma. So, um, so, so I wanted to do something which was going to show that that in some ways the, that 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 war, the conflict, all of the things he went through are still affecting his life now. So we go we go through his entire um, wartime experience. We also went to Bosnia in 2019. So the second part of the book is, is us traveling in Bosnia um, as, as we go into the, the period when Smyo lived under siege in, in Mostar. Um, like I said, I mean, I, I hope that when people read it, they, they will think differently about their own lives. They will think differently about their families, about the people that they love, about grief, um, about, about trauma, you know, all, all of those things are universal experiences, not just for people who've been in, in conflict situations, but, but any, you know, all of us carry some degree of trauma. Um, and there are also some stories in it from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa, which I think are really important because what was amazing about that was sort of in inverted commas, ordinary people told the most extraordinary stories that really changed South Africa and helped to, to heal at least a lot of the damage of, of apartheid. So, so some of those stories are, are in there as well. Um, Smile, what would you add to that? It's your story. <laughs> no, I think you covered everything. That was really good. Also, maybe just in the interest of time, I'll ask my final question. Um, there might be two parts to this, but what do you think people can learn from the Bosnian genocide and refugees more generally? And how can our listeners support your work? Smile, you go, you go first. I'll give a quick answer, then Emily's going to do all the, the beautiful things and package it all. <laughs> and this is how we wrote the book over the last four years. Okay, so for me, and the reason why I do this work, literally weeks before the kind of official start of the war in Bosnia, even when it started, I think, no one ever believed that things would get you know, um, as bad as they did. Everyone thought, you know, there's a bit of tension. Even though that tension went on for years, you know, like like two, three, four years before, even longer. 
And no one ever thought that actually something as bad as that could happen. We had held the Winter Olympics in 1984, yeah, before I was born, Torval and Dean and all that. Um, and then even when the war started, you know, when it was spreading across parts of Bosnia and even Croatia, no one ever thought that it would get as bad as that. And even throughout the war, there was times when things would, you know, be quiet and we thought actually there would be things happening in the background and, and things would stop. And it also kind of, I always think back to the start of COVID. I remember leaving work and I thought, ah, oh, two, three weeks working from home. It's going to be nice. You know, I've seen the students on Zoom. It's going to be lovely, you know, a bit of a break. Like, I never thought it would get as bad as it did. And then we literally had people fighting over toilet paper, which I still think is absolutely, you know, like crazy. But it's that idea that actually no one ever thinks that this can happen to them. We always think, you know, when we look at the black and white images from the Holocaust, we think, you know, that was a completely different time. We're different. We're more civilized now. When we look at what happens in, in Syria or Libya or Afghanistan, we think, oh, that happens to someone else, somewhere else. It can't happen to us. When we look at Ukraine, we always um, justify these things, you know, that it's always, you know, the things that we see in TV happening to someone else, somewhere else, that's, that's always different. For me, the first step the first step to safeguarding what we have here in the UK is acceptance, is accepting what happened in Bosnia can happen here. And Bosnia was this beautiful, multi-ethnic, multicultural place where, you know, there was no differences between people and it happened there and the most awful things happened there. And for me, the first step to safeguarding what we have here is accepting that what happened there and what happens in Ukraine now, what happened in Afghanistan and Syria and so on can happen here. So for me, it's it's that acceptance. And then it's building upon that. It's saying, actually, what Emlyn said previously um, about peace not being, you know, uh, just the absence of war. It's more than that. So how do we maintain peace? How do we take action? How do we make sure that we're not being bystanders when we see things happening in, in our communities? So it's taking action, taking positive action. Um, and that's, that's what we try and that's what I try and get across in my talks about Bosnia. I mean, I think that, that I mean, it's a brilliant summary, Smayo. It was you totally stole the answer that I was I was going to give. I think it's I think what what I would add or extend that with is that it doesn't you can't change the past it doesn't matter what's happened to you in your past whatever has happened you can find constructive meaning from it and you can you can use the pain and the trauma that you've been through to make the world a better place and I think it's a it's a very strange thing for me to think of is that is that the the terrible things that Smyo went through in his life have greatly enriched my life because of the meaning that he has drawn from it and because of the way that he sees his past and the way he's made sense of it he has made me and thousands of people who've heard his story he's made us all into better people so there there, there is there is value to be to be found in that pain if if you can if you can draw a, a positive meaning from it um in terms of how people can support our work Fundamentally, just just be a good person. Love the people around you. Stick up for refugees, um, and don't and don't belittle and tear down the people who are opposed to them, because they will entrench their position. Reach out to them, explain, listen to them, 
and people have a, an amazing ability to change. We can we can improve people's attitudes to refugees, um, but we need to embody those um, those values of humanity, not just preach them, but but embody them in the way that we talk about these things and the way that we discuss or debate or challenge. Um, and also, people can support us by following Smio on Twitter. He's at just at Smio Besso. We both have really unusual names, so we both just got our names as handles. Uh, my main platform is TikTok, uh, Emlyn Pierce at TikTok, and Smio is going to be doing more stuff on TikTok as well. I hope with my with my sort of support and help. So uh, so look out for both of us on on there. Um, and yeah, tell your friends if you know any agents or publishers let them know that we've got a book tell them to get in touch because we would love to get this story out there in, in book form to to a wider audience definitely all to all our listeners i will be linking emily and smiles handles in the transcript and also underneath our social media accounts and that kind of brings me to the end of the questions and i would just like to tell, thank you so much for taking the time out to be on our podcast thank you but i have a last question how can <laughs> we support your work here what Honestly, can, what can we do for you I think the the only thing I really want from our world too is for people to share the stories of the our participants and people who take the time out to tell us the most horrific thing they've been through. And I think that's kind of where the support can lie for our world too. Beyond that, just follow us, I guess, on social media, but definitely amplify the, the, the narratives we have. I think that would be the biggest ask I have. Keep in touch with us, please. We, we'd love to talk to you again and, you know, help help however we can because it is it's so important there's nothing more powerful to change people's minds than, than hearing a story it is it is the, the number one tool we have for for building humanity so we you know we love the work that you're doing it's it's really important thank you once again emlyn samayo for joining us for this episode of more than a statistic and telling us more about your incredible work for our listeners, all the links to Smile and Emlyn's work will be in the description box and in the transcript, and I strongly encourage you to follow along and support their work. 